0: Listener Production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. On Her Game is a space where I get to share the stories of our incredible female sporting stars to try and learn more about the person behind the athlete. I'm excited to partner with Puma to uncover how their female sporting icons have reached the top of their fields. The challenges they've faced along the way, the boundaries they've had to push through, the glass ceilings they've had to smash, as well as the hopes, dreams and fearless attitudes that have shaped the women they are today. Together, we'll make sure women are seen, heard and treated as equals, both in sport and in life. In this episode, I speak with 100 metre hurdler, Liz Clay. Liz is an athlete who knows all about setbacks. Throughout her career, it's been one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. like a dance. And it actually was dance where she started, before a comment about her body saw her turn to the athletics track instead. A hurdler, she's enjoyed injuries, illness and disappointments, but never lost sight of her dream. And in 2021, after all the setbacks, challenges, and a lightbulb moment overseas, she produced the races of her life to earn her place on the plane to the Tokyo Games. It's taken incredible resilience and determination to stay the course of her career and create her own high-performance pathway. But her journey leads starts as an energetic and upbeat little Liz growing up in Sydney.
1: I did dancing from when I was like three until I was 18. So I did that the whole way through. But other than that, I did netball, basketball, soccer, hockey, touch. I just played everything. Did you want to be a dancer when you grew up? I think sometimes I did. Yeah, for sure. I don't think I wanted to be a ballerina. I just didn't love it that much. But I auditioned for a commercial agency. It was in my first or second year of uni. And I think before I even went to the audition, I decided that I didn't want to do it. And what that would have given me if I got in was it was kind of like a modelling, you know, I'm pretty sure you're like a backup dancer or a dancer at Ivy and like clubs in Sydney kind of thing. And then I'm sure like I can't sing. So some people would have gone on to be in musicals and whatnot. But I just, yeah, I can't I went to the audition because some of my friends were going and I know some people, I knew some people in the agency, but yeah, it just I decided even before I turned up that it wasn't for me. But I gave it a go. So <laughs> So what happened at the audition? The choreography was a little beyond me for what I was expecting. And, you know, I was up against these dancers who had trained at Brent Street full-time for two years and I've just been at the studio that I'd been at, you know, for the last 15 years and I was good but I just, I just didn't compare. And also I was already running like six days a week and my body just, you know, I turned up, I took my shirt off, I was wearing a crop top underneath and I had six pack and, you know, I had like biceps and like, pretty big shoulders and everyone else was like skinny sticks and I was like ah this is just not where I'm meant to be unfortunately.
0: Did anyone say anything?
1: Um, I did get a comment from someone who knew the judges of the audition because I asked I was like what what was I missing what was not what didn't they like and there was a comment that was just you know like you you're pretty muscly
0: and there was no one else there that looked like you and I was like oh well doesn't matter. So you really muscly. How good's a six pack? That's awesome. <laughs> Impressive. But do you, were you always um, so confident in your muscles and in your body?
1: I think so. I mean, you know, obviously everyone goes through things with their bodies when they're going through high school. And to be honest, when I went through high school, like Instagram wasn't a thing. Facebook was used as a totally different platform. Like, I didn't really have that pressure that kids and teenagers have now. So, and because I was playing so much sport, I didn't even think twice about it. You know, it was just, I had a six pack. It was great. Well, tell us, how did athletics come into your life? So my brother, actually, Harry, was doing little athletics at the time. And on a Saturday morning, he would go to Little A's at 7am and then I would go and watch And then we'd go, we'd take me to dancing after that at about 11 and I'd be there all afternoon. And then one year I was just like, oh, I'm so bored watching. I'm going to join in this year. Can I do it? And I did. And I think it was under 10s and yeah, I I had fun and I, you know, at little A's you do all the events from walks to long distance to long jump, high jump. I did absolutely everything. Um, So yeah, that's how I got into it. It just stuck.
0: Was there any disciplines early that, you know, as a little kid, you kind of clung on to with little lazy do everything? Was there something that attracted you more than anything else? Was it the hurdles?
1: No. I. <laughs> the first thing I loved was race walking. I don't know race why. Race walking. It's the opposite of hurdles. So I did, I think it was like 700 metre race walk and then it went up to 800 and then 1,100 metres. And then I tried my hand at long distance running for a while which for me was like 800 metres again and then yeah one year I just did really well in the hurdles and I think you, you don't do hurdles for a few years in little age mm. I'm not sure why it took me so long but I yeah, just had a knack for it and continued on with
0: it. How old were you when you were allowed to, to hurdle?
1: I think I started doing hurdles in like the under 10s under 11s um and you know, back then the hurdles are like yay high,
0: and yay high because this is a podcast. Is like
1: <laughs> yay tall. high is like um, <laughs> really high, probably sixty centimeters,
0: right? Okay, off
1: the ground. Oh, not even maybe fifty. Yeah, okay, um, really short. Yeah. So you know, there's not a lot of skill involved for hurdles when you're under 11s. Mm-hmm. Um, just the fastest person wins. But as you kind of go through the heights and you go up through the age groups, the hurdles get higher and they get further apart. So it becomes more of a rhythm and speed and there's a lot more elements that go into it.
0: Is there something about hurdles um, that you have to go through or experience that people like me or the general public wouldn't quite understand or realise? Something interesting about hurdles?
1: Yeah, there is. And I'm just starting to, you know, work on this myself. It's that When you get faster over the flat, you get closer to the hurdle. So when you're running in between, you do three steps in between. But as you get faster, the hurdles come at you quicker. So it's not like once you get your speed, you know, up, and I've really improved my speed in the last couple of years. For me, the challenge now is getting my eyeballs in and, you know, kind of navigating where the hurdle is and how fast I'm coming up to it and where I'm taking off from, that's the biggest challenge now. It's not so much working on strength and speed.
0: It's that concentration.
1: Yeah, and just practice. Like we do things where we pull the hurdles right in so they're really close so I can practice almost being on top of them rather than reaching for them. So, yeah, it's you've got to balance, you know, your speed and your hurdles to kind of come together at the same time.
0: Because you could be having a blinder like you've never run before, but then that kind of stuffs you up because you're closer to the hurdle and that wrecks your rhythm?
1: Yeah, well, that happened to me a month ago and I was absolutely flying for the first three and then I got so close that I tickled one Mm. and then I smashed the next one Mm. and I managed to stay up and hold on and still win. But I finished that race and I was like, wow, that right there, that was, you know, and I learned a lot from that, which was great. You have to have those races where you, um, you know, something goes wrong and then you adjust and then you fix it for the next one.
0: Far out. I actually wouldn't have thought of that, but that makes total sense. So when, take me back. So when did, when did it become serious? When did you realize I'm really good at this and I can go far with this and I could go Olympics?
1: Well, I wouldn't say I, I thought that I could go to the Olympics when I started. Um, but the, in 2014, it was my second year of uni and world junior championships was that year. It's in Oregon. It's for athletes under 20 was the age bracket, which was me. And I was at the top end of that age bracket. So really achievable goal. You had to run a qualifying time and I ran the qualifying time and I was like, whoa, you know, like there's only a handful of girls, two or three girls that have run that. I could be in contention for selection. And I went to the camp and I had an injury and got a scan on my foot and it was not good, but um, one of the uh, staff at the camp sat me down and was like, you are so talented and you could really go a long way in this sport. You've just got to stick at it. And that kind of stuck with me for how many years later is it now? Uh, Almost eight years later. So, yeah, that was, I think, the start of it.
0: So it's the difference when someone shows a tiny little bit of faith at an early yeah, stage. Yeah, for sure. Um, you broke your foot then, which was quite devastating at the time, and people think, okay, it was World Juniors, but what made it so important, World Juniors, for you at that stage of your life? Well, that competition, basically
1: from high school athletics, which for some, you know, people, that is like the pinnacle of their athletics career. There's field stands, you know, XR or GPS, um... It's amazing. And then you leave high school and you go to uni and there's literally nothing until seniors, which is like, you know, you're competing against people my age now, like 25, 26, who are, you know, men and women in their prime. So World Juniors was this competition in the middle for developing athletes. And it's so important. And this year, it actually, it's still going ahead, but the Australian team's not going. And I feel so sad for all those athletes because that competition gives you a taste of international, you know, racing and what it takes. And to have that taken away is, is um, it's pretty hard.
0: So it's a bridge between school and elite.
1: Yeah, that's the only one. There is also World University Games, but
0: it's still a senior competition. World Juniors is really the one in between. So you couldn't go there, but you got that little bit of faith that kept you going. 2015, you had incredibly bad luck, bad run of injuries. And you, how did you respond? What was your response to that back then? How did you view the kind of setbacks and all those injuries that you had in 2015 and the breaking of foot in 2014? How did that young Liz react? Well, all those
1: things were so new to me at the time. I'd never had a really, you know, injury that's putting me on the sidelines for six weeks. So. I didn't really know any different, other than to just be positive and, you know, think, oh, it'll, you know, it'll pass and it'll heal and I'll move on. And that's kind of how I dealt with 2014 and 2015 was the same. It was just one after the other after the other. But I was still so young. I was uh, 20 in 2015, and I just knew no different. So I'd go to the gym, and I would just, you know, cycle in the spin room on the bike until I literally vomited, like three or four times a week. So I was just like, I'm just going to train really hard. And then when I come back to running, I'm going to be stronger. And I was, but you know, little did I know that that was not the end of it. And the next few years, we're going to see some very
0: similar patterns. And those patterns were because you weren't recovering properly? Were you doing the recovery or was it just bad luck? Or was it you were too trying to get back too quickly?
1: I think it was a mix of everything. And honestly, my training age was so young. in, I'd really only been doing it properly from 2014, 2015, 2016. So I didn't know anything about recovery or, you know, fueling and diet and, you know, sleep and all that kind of thing. And also i just turned 18 and I was enjoying <laughs> my, you know, time going to the city every Saturday night with my best girlfriends. And looking back, I'm so glad that I had those years to have that fun because, you know, you're only 20, 21, 19 once. So I'm glad I enjoyed
0: it. It's so easy to say, isn't it, now, in that position as well. But you're right, a lot of athletes come and wish that they, you know, even come on the show and wish that they'd had that that freedom to be able to live a little earlier and, and be a teenager when they when they had the chance to be a teenager. Um, we're gonna get back to how you're gonna look back on all of this in a second, but twenty sixteen you made a really big change. You changed coaches to Sharon Hannon. Um, why is she such a big deal and how did that partnership come about?
1: Yeah, so I decided that I was going to move from Sydney to the Gold Coast. Basically, I, at a school that I was coaching at, one of the coaches there was an athletics coach and she kind of pulled me aside and was like, you know, I know you're training here and you're trying your best, but there's really nothing for you here. Sharon is up in the Gold Coast. She's got no elite hurdlers. What are you doing? Like that is just an opportunity waiting for someone to take it. No one's there. And I was I was kind of like, oh. You know, I'd never even thought of living out of home, let alone moving. But because I'm so impulsive and if someone puts an idea in my head, I'm going to do it. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm moving to the Gold Coast then. So (laughs) I called her. I would actually had a couple of training sessions with her when I was on a family holiday in the Gold Coast a couple of years earlier Um, and I really enjoyed them. So I sent her an email and then we jumped on the phone and, yeah, three weeks later at my 21st birthday party, I was telling everybody I was moving to Queensland.
0: (laughs) Now, Sharon is a big deal. She was Sally Pearson's um, coach for a really long time. Um, if you're a hurdler in Australia in the 100 metres, you're naturally going to get some comparisons to Sally Pearson when your coach is her former coach. How do, you, how do you react to those comparisons and people talking about Sally all the time?
1: I mean, it's not frustrating. It's awesome. Like, she's Olympic champion, world champion, Australian record holder. She's, you know, in the top 10 fastest times ever. So I'm honoured to even be compared or spoken about in the same sentence. But, you know, I also add on to that, she had a very different career path to me. Her, she was a child prodigy. Her speed is unparalleled. Like, She's a 100-metre hurdler that can run 11.1 for 100 metres, whereas I, my PB at the moment's like 11.79 or something. So, yeah, we've had very different um, journeys and obviously mine's still going. But, yeah, it, I see her all the time and she's, she's something else. She's, you know, one of the most driven, hardworking people I've ever met. What makes that coach-athlete relationship work? What exactly is it? The number one thing is trust because they're in charge of your whole program. They have the final say. And, yes, I ask a lot of questions only because I'm inquisitive and I want to know why we're doing this and why we're doing that. But, yeah, the number one thing is trust and because if you can't trust your coach and the training and the program they're giving you, then you may as well not be there, you know. So... And it took a while for me to develop that trust with her because I had years where I didn't run fast and I had years where I had injuries. So I think that's the number one thing.
0: Have you got to play a long game? Can't rely on just having instant results? Definitely.
1: But, you know, the first year that I moved there, I was there from June 2016. And then my first season with her was the 2016-2017 season and I did really well. I brought my PB down by 0.2 I think. I qualified for World Unis. I got selected on the team and I went to the competition. But then after that was the long game. You know, there wasn't much success for a few years after that, which I think was hard, but I'd had a taste of it.
0: Mm. I just want to play you something as well. We actually we asked Sharon about you and asked Sharon to send us a little voice memo (laughs) about her journey with you we can play that for you now Liz I think it's wonderful you're doing on her game podcast because that's exactly where you're at at the moment I'm going to talk about two stunning performances from this season the first race of the season was a 12.84 second Olympic qualifier And not only was I stunned, but everyone in the grandstand and at the meet was stunned that day. It was just amazing. I knew you were in good shape, but I wasn't quite sure that you were in that good a shape. The second will probably surprise you, I think, from all your performances this year. It was a 12.88 second run, just five days after a terrible fall. That showed confidence and what a really tough competitor you are. And I'm extremely excited for the rest of this year enjoy keep up the hard work and I'll see you six days a week it's been a long game hasn't it when she talks about performances this year we're 2021 and that was back in 2016 you started that journey with her that's five years
1: yep I just love her she's the best
0: you know you talked about how she helped you as an athlete as a person how has she helped you Sharon is a great coach
1: um she has these qualities that a lot of coaches don't have and that's she cares about your development as a person as well not just physical on the track and I mean not directly but you know over the years I think I've definitely picked up things from her and learned things from her about being selfless and about being patient and about you know it's an individual sport but also not making it all about you and you know, caring for other people's things that they have going on in their life. And just, yeah, I think selflessness and patience is probably the things that she's taught me. However, she will say that I'm <laughs> still very selfish, <laughs> but you have to be. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: And she has to say that. She has to keep you grounded. Six she days a
1: week. She knows. She knows what to say.
0: <laughs> well, we talked about you know she's given us a hint of where you're at now but let's talk about the journey to get to where you are now 2017 and 2018 the bad luck for you continued you talk about world uni games being another important tournament to bridge that you know high school to elite um you had the world uni games in taiwan you got the flu over there and were in quarantine and then came dead last in that the next year I want to talk about, that was the Com Games qualifier. This is your big chance to step up onto that world stage for the qualifying. You're going well in the lead up, but what happened at those qualifiers?
1: Yeah, that was such a tough season mentally because, you know, it was a home Com Games in my, not hometown, but where I lived and where I trained and this just comes back to training age, is that I honestly was just trying too hard. I just wanted it so badly that every race I was just angry, like before I'd even gotten out of the blocks because, yeah, it was almost like self-sabotage. I just had the total wrong mentality about the whole thing, to be honest. And you could see, and I have said this to people this season, when an athlete gets slower and slower and slower, it's not because they're getting out of shape or they're getting unfit. It's because they're trying too hard and they're chasing a time. And that's what I was doing. So I turned up to the trial and I ran my two slowest times of the year just because I was trying too hard. And I've actually watched that race back a handful of times and you can see it. It's just, I'm really tense. And like, I just, you can see it on my face. It's insane. So I'm, You know, but again, I'm glad I had those experiences because I learned from that season that being too pumped up and too, you know, aroused and angry at the start line is so the opposite of where you should be.
0: Mm. I guess it's an individual thing, isn't it? Because I feel like we're always taught to care and athletes are taught to care and they're taught to focus and they're taught to, you know, only focus on, on that goal and then you were doing that but it just wasn't what was working for you.
1: Yeah. There's definitely, you know, there's a curve and I was at that end of the curve when I needed to be at the top of the curve. It needs to be balanced. So yeah, but I, I couldn't, again, I had to go through those things to work out what works for me. Some people that may work for them, you know, they could be angry and frustrated at the start line, especially in hurdles because you're not just getting out of the blocks and running to the finish line. You've got to do you know, you've got to complete a set of skills all the way down and clear 10 barriers. So your head's got to be clear.
0: How difficult then was it watching friends compete at the Com Games in on the Gold Coast where you live in your backyard? How difficult was that then knowing that performance in the qualifiers? I
1: think because I was so close, it was obviously heartbreaking. But I love seeing my friends succeed and watching them in person at the Com Games was insane. It's, you know, the biggest motivation and inspiration I could have asked for and they all did really well. So, you know, I think as difficult as it was, I enjoyed the whole thing and I, you know, that was in April. There was still so much of the year to go, so much of the season. So I just decided my year's not over. I'm going to, you know, go over to the US and go over to Europe and, continue on
0: and use some of that motivation from them. So you went to the US. Why the US? Why was that an impulsive decision? Why was that? How did that come about?
1: Well, one of my friends, Ella Nelson, she's Olympic 200 metre sprinter. She was training over there at a facility called uh, Exos and Altus. And, you know, Phoenix is 35 degrees every day and they're in this high-performance environment and there was an opportunity for me to go. I love travelling, so I was like, what do I have to lose? The coach is there. There's a hurdle coach there who coached, um, still coaches the men's 110 world record holder, Aries Merritt. His name is Andreas and I'm still very tight with him. So, yeah, I was like, I'm going to go over. I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to train. I'm going to be a sponge. I learned so much about athletics. It is <laughs> insane. That trip really, you know, kickstarted something in me. I had three weeks there and then I was like, I'm going to go and take myself to New York for a week and have a solo holiday. And I did. And I loved every minute of it. So I was trying to make something of the year that was initially pretty sad.
0: What's the US system like for athletics?
1: There is obviously so many more people over there and they have their college system. So, you know, athletes like the equivalent of me in 2013, 14, and 15, and 16 are in a college system where they're taken care of every day. They've got high performance coaches, high performance facilities. They really have a path to becoming professional. So I mean, there's a lot of there is a lot of success over there, but there's a lot of success over there in every sport because, you know, they love sport and there's so much money in every sport over there. So yeah. Going over there to train, it's just this high-performance environment that cannot be replicated in Australia, and it hasn't been. You know, I'm sure some people have similar environments um, where they train, but, yeah, going over there, it's just the calibre of athletes and the calibre of coaches that they had is just, like,
0: unparalleled. Does it feel, like, a bit like a, another universe over there? Like when you're in another world, when you see those things for the sport that you participate in, you love, but it's so, so different.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the girls that I'm watching over there, the 100 metre hurdle girls, now I'm, you know, creeping up to be in the same league as them. But before I was running 13.5 and they're running 12.5. So I wasn't like, oh my God you know, that could be me. We could have that here. But now I am running those times. And <laughs> I must say the the at nationals this year was pretty good for the Sunday afternoon, but it just doesn't compare.
0: And is it you have to kind of make your own path? Like you found Sharon, you linked that with Sharon. Is that the kind of path you've had to kind of, you've created your own pathway?
1: A hundred percent. And that's where so many Australian athletes get lost. And I've had a lot of people in the last, you know, year say to me, wow, your setup is so good. I wish I could have something like that. My gym coach, David, and my track coach, Sharon, they work so well together. My environment where I train is awesome. Everyone's on the same page. It's all working together well. But firstly, it took me five years to get to that point. And secondly, I had to move to be able to even create that, you know, so it does take a lot. It's all the athlete and it's all funded by the athlete. So yeah, it's so individual.
0: You have to be pretty focused and pretty determined to go through that.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I mean, like I'm the most stubborn person I've ever met. So (laughs) if, if it's not working for me, I'm going to keep trying until it does.
0: You said you went to Europe as well. And again, traveling with Ella Nelson, Um, you guys had a bit of fun out there. Like it wasn't all business, was it?
1: Yeah. And I hadn't been to Europe before. So, you know, as much as I was enjoying the track and the training and these cool facilities, one afternoon we we had training. We were in Brussels in Belgium. And then we were like, should we go to Paris? We don't have anything on for the next two days. Okay. So yeah, we went to Paris and we were there for literally 24 hours and it was the best couple of days. <laughs> we always look back on it and she put up a vlog on YouTube. I reckon I watch it once a month. <laughs> it was so fun. We went shopping, we saw all the sites and, you know, they, I'd, I'd never been to Europe before. So I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so yeah, we had some really fun times over there.
0: It's good. It feels like, you know, you were, you did your business, but you also got a chance to just be a 20 year old over there. What did you learn the most from those two trips?
1: I learn a few things on different scales. I think the number one thing I learned was actually a conversation with Ella on the rooftop of our accommodation in Brussels. We were randomly just sitting up there. I think we were up there for a couple of hours and um, 2018, so she's been to the Olympics and we were pretty much just unpacking my whole athletics career setup everything about it from what days I train, what things I do on what days. We just had this whole conversation and we actually talked about it the other day. It was just we realised so many things and so many things that needed to change um, in terms of like my eating and diet and really like athletic specific stuff. And then on the flip side of that, I learned that, you know, to be an elite track and field athlete, professional athlete, there has to be a balance between life and training and you have to really enjoy life out of training. So you have to find things that you like doing. You have to not stress about, you know, what you're doing on the weekends or not stress about having a bad night's sleep, not stressing about things that really aren't going to impact, you know, how you train. And it showed in those Common Games trials that, Every time I turn up to training or a competition, I was so stressed. I was so worried about how it was going to go. And from those two trips and meeting other professional athletes that were training with her and how relaxed they were and how much they enjoyed just turning up to training every day and, you know, going for coffee afterwards, I learned that you have to have a balance between the two. Otherwise, you will not be successful.
0: Is that your light bulb moment?
1: It was. That was the light bulb that whole year. If that year didn't happen, I don't think I would be where I am today.
0: Wow. Was it a come Like we just talk about going to New York and then going to Paris on the whim. Was it letting your hair down and giving yourself permission to do those kind of things that you were just like, actually, this is what I need? I think so. Because prior
1: to that, I was so stubborn. I wouldn't even go to Sydney to train because I was just like, oh, I'm not at my home track. I'm not at my home gym. The training. And it sounds silly, but I was like, oh, it's just not the same. I have to be in the Gold Coast. I have to be with Sharon. Otherwise, I'm not going to reach my goals. And then I did all this travelling, learnt all these great things about running and about life. And I was just like, whoa, I need to relax. I need to just
0: chill. And as soon as I did that, everything started to work out. How are your PVs changing as we lead up to 2020, which, of course, was the big qualifier for the Olympics pre-COVID?
1: Yes. So I, in terms of PBs, the 2019 season, I didn't run a PB. um, But away from competition, I was, you know, improving how I was running. I was improving my speed and I was working on all these different things. Um, I ended up getting an injury 2019. Very sad because I was on a good trajectory. And then I had another 12 months of training into 2020 and it was just solid consistent work but also living that balanced you know enjoyable life and yeah then 2020 came around and I was in really good shape and I was feeling great and things just started to click especially over the hurdles anyway we um there was a few competitions lined up there was one in Melbourne I wasn't going to go initially and then last minute, I was just like, why not? I'll just go. (laughs) Melbourne's great. Haven't been in ages. You know, if we're talking about ranking points for the Olympics, you know, that was a, I think a C or D ranked meet and there were solid points online. I was like, if I'm not getting the points, someone else is. So I went down there, it was the last race of the night or one of the last and no one expected it, but I just came out and Ran 1294. I ran a perfect race for me at the time and I broke 13. Yeah. Everyone was like, What? <laughs> Holy moly. Ha- where has this come from? And even I was like that. But I know that Sharon was just like, I knew it was going to happen.
0: <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how close were you then, before COVID happened, to getting to your Olympic dream?
1: I think. I was definitely on my way. I'd had a couple of consistent performances that season. I'd had 13.26, 12.94, 13.17 was in the rain and then 13.01. And at that stage, the qualifier was still 12.84. I wasn't sure whether I would have run it that year. And honestly, I don't think I would have just because I'd had such a, you know, I'd made leaps and bounds. Um, But I had a really good chance at getting in on points, especially if I went overseas after that uh, domestic Australian season and, you know, worked my way up the ranking. So I think I would have probably been on the team, but I don't think I would have, you know, made an impact in the 100-metre hurdle, you know, Tokyo 2020 competition. I think I would have gone, I would have run the heat, done okay, gone home got the tracksuit
0: so has the postponement somewhat helped you then and being was it was it a good thing for your for your career and your olympic dream
1: at the time i was like this was my year and it's cancelled why but in hindsight it was the best thing that could have happened i got another 12 months of training under my belt of solid consistent work and yeah now i'm a genuine competitor to you know, maybe make the final, which is awesome.
0: Because this is your career. It's like reaching high, so many prospects and bang, setback, massive, break your foot, get sick, come last in the race, you're in quarantine and then you're back, oh my gosh, yes, and then bang, like you for some reason run the worst worst race, There's you come back and then bang, in Europe, injury and then 2019 is going well, then bang, you're out again and then finally you're on a great thing, Looks as though you're gonna qualify and then bang, COVID. Did you think at some stage, I'm cursed here? Like, why does this keep happening?
1: I mean, I've never used the word cursed, but now that you say it Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. I you know, like honestly, I'll just go, you know what? It's typical. Like at any stage always, did
0: you think about quitting? No. Not never. at any stage did you think this, I've tried my hardest, but this is just one setback too much?
1: Never. There was never a moment where I wasn't going to continue. I don't know why because, you know, it's it's been a really long journey, but there was just no chance that I was going to quit because I knew I hadn't reached the potential that I could. I didn't know what that was, but I knew that it was better than what I was doing. So there was just, I was just never going to quit. And to be honest... Yeah, I'd put so much time and effort into it that I didn't know what else I was going to do if I quit. So I was like, well, I may as well just keep going.
0: Mm. So there was no plan B at that stage?
1: No plan B. No plan B. I mean, I was at uni and I was working on the side, but
0: no plan B. 12.72 in 2021, you're having great performances. Yay! Great <laughs> B give me the thumbs up. But when you realise you'd qualified after everything that you've been through, what, take me there, what emotions were you feeling at that stage?
1: Oh, that, well, I first qualified in Brisbane, my first race of the season, just a small meet in the Queensland Athletics kind of series and didn't expect it, but Sharon and I and David, my other gym coach, were standing in the stands and Matt Lynch read it over the loudspeaker and it was just like tears. And I think there were so many people watching us react to that and a lot of people knew the whole journey that it, you know, it just meant so much more to me and to Sharon and to David. It was just such, I was so elated. I don't know how to describe it. (laughs)
0: Who was the first person that you called, or you talked to, or you <laughs> hugged? Or
1: oh, I I hugged Sharon, definitely. I hugged David, and then my parents. I called. Mum wasn't the first person I called because you know I put it on Instagram and people see it, and your phone's just you put it on Instagram before up. you called your mum. I did, yeah. yes. Saw's <laughs> mum because <laughs> she didn't answer the first time. I right.
0: Think. Okay. Anyway. <laughs>
1: She was at a, um, she had friends over for lunch cause they live in Sydney and I called her and she picked up and I was like, mom, she's like, what? Cause she could hear that something was happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like. I ran 12.84, I qualified for the Olympics. And it was just like if there was a caption, it was just inaudible (laughs) for 30 seconds. It was screaming, cheering. She was telling her friends that were over and Dad was, oh, it was chaos. I had to hang up. And then I called them back when they'd all calmed down. So, So and I mean, you know, my parents have ridden this wave somewhat Mm. with me the whole time too. So it's just as relieving and happy for them.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) You must be pretty proud of what you've done. Like I said, you've had so many setbacks, but you haven't quit. You haven't thought about it. Um, And now you're on that plane to Tokyo. You must be, like when you look back, pretty proud. I am
1: proud of myself. Um, You know, I can say that. But it's crazy. Like you have these successes and, you know, 2016 Liz would have, if she knew about this she would have just gone, oh, done. I'm so happy with that for my career. That is awesome, you know. But now me, I'm like, great, but I've got to make the final. And in three years' time, I'm going to be on the podium. There's just, the goalpost just keeps moving. So, yes, I'm proud and, yes, I'm so happy, but it's just there's no level of success that's ever going to be satisfying.
0: Are you prepared for that? Do you try to... Give yourself time to celebrate the small wins. Do you do that?
1: I do because I've learned that they are so scarce, especially in individual, lonely track and field. There's only, there's so many downs and a handful of, you know, ups. So I do try to celebrate the successes and enjoy those moments as much as I can because, you know, you wake up the next morning you know, two mornings after, everyone's forgotten about it. They're moving on. There's another sport that's qualifying. there's another athlete that's qualifying. You celebrate while it's happening, but mm. then, yeah.
0: What do you want your story of persistence and resilience? What do you want that to say to little girls and little boys as well?
1: I was thinking about this on the way here. Um, that patience is the number one quality that you can have as an athlete, and it's the hardest to develop. But if you have patience, you will go so much further than if you don't. I didn't know that I was learning that through all those years, but I look back and I've said as impulsive and as determined and stubborn as I am, I actually was very patient
0: all the way along. Another big change that you made was that you stopped working full-time. I mean, this is, we talk about the US system. One of the difficult things about your journey in Australia is you still had to work. You still had to earn money on the side from athletics and you were working in retail. You quit that. And how much of an impact did that have?
1: Almost instantaneously. I mean, it was in the middle of 2019. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't make that big change when I got back from Europe in 2018. But I was presented with an opportunity and this was actually a big leap of faith for me because I like having everything set in stone in terms of financials, in terms of timing, in terms of everything. And someone had said, you know, we've got this opportunity for you if you want to take it. And it was very blasé. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it because I've been working in retail for you know 5 or 6 years and maybe that's the thing that's got to change and along with a lot of other things it was such a good decision because all of a sudden athletics was the number one thing in my day and not something else it's a pretty unique situation to be in and I did get pretty lucky with that but I'm so glad I did make that decision
0: and meant you were off your feet essentially as well didn't it which yeah something small like that you just yeah makes a big difference even yeah, you're trying to be a high-performance athlete as well.
1: Yeah, and I was, you know, although I was, you know, in runners and tights and I was in comfortable footwear, I was standing on concrete for eight hours a day after, you know, running six one fifties on three minutes. Like, it, it was just a no-brainer. And when I stopped, I was like, oh, my gosh, my legs are like, my legs are loving me at the
0: moment. Yeah, right. You could feel that difference immediately. Yeah, for sure. Saying that and talking about the US system and how different your journey um, and pathway has been, uh, is there enough support from brands, sponsors, um, and Australian sport for athletes like yourself? Or are we too focused? Is there is there too much of a focus on team sports, for instance? How hard is it for you know you who've gone to be an Olympian, your journey?
1: I'll be the first to say that, you know, individual sport can be severely underlooked in that department. But on the other hand, I've been so incredibly lucky through my whole career, even when I wasn't doing very well to have support, not financially, but just, you know, my parents, my work that I was doing at the time, I did have a pretty good support system in that sense. And I don't, I wasn't running times fast enough to to have brand support, you know, from a sponsor or whatever. But, you know, when I ran that 12.94 in Melbourne, I was breakthrough moment. I was like, here we go. This is, this is it. This is where, you know, it could start happening for me. And the brand that I was with basically turned around and said no. And I was like, wow. And it was kind of like this, again, light bulb moment, like, It's going to take a lot more than that in individual sport to make it into a career. And I'm lucky because I've got a lot of Instagram followers. So for me, I can, you know, use that to my advantage and do posts and do things like that. But for someone who doesn't have that, and especially males, I think it's really hard for them, it is so difficult to get support in track and field. It's unless you are, you know, Sally Pearson, Olympic champion, world champion. It doesn't come until after those accolades and people are like, oh, okay, she's she's actually pretty good. Whereas in team sports, you know, they've got a lot more fans and they've got a lot more, they're on TV. So, yeah, it is a lot harder for us, I think. Not
0: me personally, I will say that, but for, you know, in uh, other athletes. Because you do have a large you know, social media following um, and get a lot of focus through that uh, platform of of media, do you then get frustrated sometimes looking at mainstream media that even though you've got that engagement with fans through social media, that still doesn't resonate in mainstream media and athletics doesn't get as much? I don't get
1: frustrated for me personally because I'm new on the scene I'll take any opportunity that I can get and be grateful for it. But I do get frustrated when, you know, we've had a national championships and there's three stories that come out of that. Whereas, and I love, you know, AFL, NRL, but, you know, they've had a week's just normal standard competition. And the, the first six pages of the newspaper is filled with it. And, you know, You know, we train just as hard as those athletes and we don't get much recognition for it. And I think it's more athletics as a whole that needs to, you know, be more in mainstream media, not just individual athletes. As I said, I'm grateful for all the opportunities
0: that I have, but I do think that athletics does get hard done by. When you look at your fan engagement that you have through your social media channels, it's not like you're a nobody, but that doesn't kind of resonate with... And deliver over in mainstream media, but it doesn't quite make sense. Like it almost seems the equation, mainstream media, it's not quite the same as possibly reality. Would you mean like, yeah, some of those you've got larger social media followers than many footballers? So, I think why is that not then? It's not like you don't have a fan base.
1: I think there is a disconnect there. Um, especially I understand it, you know, when I wasn't performing very well and I had this social media kind of fan base. And I'd get all these comments like, why does she have so many followers? She's not even that good. And at that time, I was like, whatever. It, it never affected me at all. But, you know, and it's, I speak for a lot of other athletes here, once you have got the performances and you're a world-class athlete and you have the following and you're still not getting any attention, it's, it is is nice to, you know, get that those performances and those um, successes out. And especially in an Olympic year when track and field is like almost the number one Olympic sport. It's what everyone wants to watch. So that should be, you know, smack bang in everyone's faces this
0: year. So some kind of unconscious bias with the news values of mainstream media then? Because what you're saying, it doesn't make sense. You've got the performance, you're a world cast athlete, you've got fan engagement. So where are the stories in the paper? Where's the interest in mainstream media? But do we have to focus on mainstream media anymore? I don't think so.
1: You know, like I went to buy a paper that I was in the other day and I hadn't I don't think I've ever bought a paper before, but in my head I was like, <laughs> they're like a dollar, I think. Sixty cents. And then I went to buy the paper and it was four fifty.
0: $4. 50 now.
1: Oh my god, do people still buy these things? Like and the only reason I bought it was because there was a paywall on the internet one and I couldn't read this story, so I had to go buy the the copy of it. But um No, I think, you know, people go on Instagram to get their, you know, news now almost. They go on Instagram to get the up-to-date scores. You know, I follow the Suns, the Phoenix Suns, NBA team, number one in the West. Um, (laughs) And, you know, to go on, to check the score of a game, I go on Instagram. That's the first thing I do. So there is definitely a shift from, you know, mainstream media and news to social media and what you can gain from that
0: and just picking up what you're saying, it just frustrates me because, you know, you do have that social media following. People are engaged in your journey. They're engaged in, in what you're doing. That argument, you know, that, you know, oh, that's not what our readers want to see. You know, the fact that they're not doing as many stories on, on individual athletes like yourself, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't add up. And the excuses that female athletes have been told in the past of, oh, they're not interested in that. That doesn't make sense because you put another platform out there like the social media platforms and you guys are going crazy. People want to know about you. They want to know about your successes or else they wouldn't be engaged in your story and in your platform.
1: I think the biggest thing with, with that is that people don't know who you are or or that you exist. Like the Australian general population they just they just don't know because they can't watch it on TV they don't read about it in the newspapers or you know on daily telegraph or the australian or whatever the newspaper is every day you know they read the, about the same teams and the same players every week so they get to know who they are and then they watch them on TV i think it's not that they're not interested they just don't they just don't know who you are they haven't heard of you and they might not hear of you until you're running in an Olympic final. But then again, after that Olympic final, the next three years, they're probably not going to hear about you again. So they forget. So it's not a matter of them not being interested. It's just that they they don't know who you are. They don't know what your story is. They don't know what your successes are. Some people don't even know that women run 100-metre hurdles and not 110 like the men's.
0: But well, my argument is they do know about you because... They are engaged in your social media channels, whereas in mainstream media it's not. So, you know, that's what I'm kind of saying. That doesn't make sense, that argument that they're not interested, they don't know who you are because they're on your social. You've got a, a big social following.
1: But the thing is that they they choose to follow me on socials and they choose to follow the journey and they might, might, might have come across me by accident or on the explore page or because they follow one of my friends or because they follow athletics australia on instagram it's they have been directed there by hearing from it from someone else or somewhere else or sometimes by chance but the general population you know you're just average tv watcher or average news reader they don't know they might not be on in instagram
0: what's the biggest challenge you think facing young girls wanting to pursue a career in your sport The biggest challenge,
1: I think, and we've spoken about this already, is that transition from high school to senior. That is so hard and it's the time where the most athletes drop out. And, you know, I was so determined that there was no chance that that was going to happen for me. But if I was to look at the girls that I was competing against in high school and the girls that I'm competing against now, there's like one or two left and some of those girls were so talented. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge is that there's absolutely, well, there is, but it's hard to get onto it. There's not a big pathway between junior and senior sport. That is the hardest thing in athletics.
0: Saying that, if you could be totally fearless about the future that you want for young girls heading into your sport and Shackles are off here. You can dream big and as wide as anything. You've been given a crystal ball and you can make this happen. If you could be fearless about the future, what would you want to see for young girls?
1: I mean, if I had a magic wand, I would create some high-performance facility or program, one in every state, some big program or facility where People can go from the ages of 16 to 24 and they get the best training. They get, they learn things about not specifically just track and field, but, you know, like diet and recovery and all of that. Because if I had that when I was growing up through this sport, it just would have been so much easier than just working it out on my own and spending thousands of dollars on MRIs and, you know, switching coaches and switching physios and trying to suss that all out myself. I think something where there's a direct pathway, like the college system in the U.S., for athletes to leave school, they do whatever that is and then they're in seniors and their training age is, you know, high and they're really knowledgeable knowledgeable about what they're supposed to be doing.
0: That is what I would change break through the walls that we need to, to achieve equality. What is the number one thing that you would want to implement to see this change for female athletes? As in equality in sport? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, in my sport, I feel like because males compete against males and females compete against females, it's pretty equal. Mm -hmm. Athletics, We don't get a lot of funding. There's not a lot of money in it. So from my sheltered, you know, track and field point of view, I think it it is quite equal in our sport. Um, And obviously I'm pretty across, you know, you've got the women's AFL and the women's NRL. I was actually reading this article the other day that just said there's only four women's NRL teams in the Australian competition. I couldn't believe that. I was like, are you serious? So... I don't know, whether it's money or whether it's mainstream media is what we were just talking about. I'm not sure what the actual thing is that needs to be changed, but just more recognition, I think, and more recognition for women's skills and their achievements. And people are doing great things with podcasts and Instagram pages and all of that, but again, unless it gets into the mainstream media, it's it's not going to change, I don't think.
0: So my last question, if you could go back and tell your 10-year-old self, that 10-year-old Liz anything, what would you tell her?
1: I would tell her that hard work can beat talent if that hard work is patient because my whole journey has just been about biding my time and being patient and I think if 10-year-old Liz knew that if she could just be patient and wait for her turn, that it was going to come eventually, then she would be a lot less stressed
0: throughout the whole journey. I love it. You've done amazing things. It's been an incredible journey. It's been a tough journey as well. Congratulations on everything that you've achieved. All the best in Tokyo. And I can't wait to see the rise and rise and rise of Liz Clay. Thank you for sharing your story of one who came.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been A blessing.
0: On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer Lindsay Green, audio producer Nikki Sitch, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, Follow at Puma AU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless.
1: Listener.